Today on the 10% Podcast, I'm happy to bring on Joseph Beattie. For those who may not know him, he's a serial entrepreneur who has successfully raised and exited several firms in the telecom space. And now he's known for being an investor with Hyde Park Angels. Throughout this episode, we spoke about Joseph's entrepreneurship journey and how he built a strong startup team, how he raised over $100 million in venture funding and listed his company on NASDAQ. At last, Joseph shares also his insights on what VCs look for when they're getting ready to invest in a company and common mistakes he finds both investors and startups make in today's economy. So without further ado, let's now tune in. Welcome to the podcast, Joseph. We have a lot of exciting topics to talk about. I would love for you to start off by sharing a little bit about your upbringing. Sure. Great. Uh, glad to be here, Jason. Yeah, I grew up on the southwest side of Chicago by Midway Airport. Um, went down to the University of Illinois um, for an engineering degree and realized that near the end of those studies, I ne- didn't necessarily want to be an engineer, but I finished it out and um, went to work for a telephone company back in the day when telephone was not wireless. and was yeah. copper wires and big switches and dominated by the bell companies. Um, then went to night school pretty quickly um, for an MBA here at the University of Chicago, which was great. Learned a lot. Um, and then I wanted to use that degree and I wasn't quite able to do it in the phone company. So I was seven years at the phone company. And then I went looking for something that was telecom, but would let me use my MBA. So I became a securities analyst. Worked for uh, Actually, I worked for a credit rating agency, Duff & Phelps here in Chicago, which became part of Fitch Ratings eventually. But I spent two years really learning how to be a financial analyst. The experience in the industry and the MBA and a great boss who taught me how to do that. And after two years here in Chicago doing that, I got kind of lured away by a bigger paycheck to uh, Bank of America, um, which is, uh, was Nations Bank at the time. But um, So I became a sell-side, still a securities analyst, but working for an investment bank and did that for two years and then got a call from an old friend who I met in the phone company, wanted to do a startup. Uh, regulation had changed in telecom so that new competitors could enter the market. I thought it was a brilliant idea, so I agreed to do that with him and two other guys, moved back to Chicago, and we did our startup um, back in 1996, long ago, uh, here in Chicago. Um, So that was, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but that was a big learning experience. I was the chief financial officer. We raised a bunch of venture capital that went public, Um, very exciting stuff, Um, and then my biggest lesson from that was it was fun to be a CFO, but it'd be more fun to be a CEO. Yeah. So I told everyone I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I had 18 months off after I left the startup. And then I got the chance to run a company. It was privately held by private equity, private equity fund. Yeah. Um, that was a company that built Wi-Fi and wireless uh, cellular systems at airports. We sold that to Boingo Wireless. So you'll see those networks today. If you go to LaGuardia or O'Hare, Boingo is the company. We built those networks long ago. Sold that company. That was considered a success. And then um, took a little time off again and then ran a company called Tellular, which was already public. I was hired in. um, And that company I ran for six plus years. 
And that was bought. It was public, but not very large. It was bought by a private equity firm, taken private again. And then I kind of left full-time work for family reasons. And so for the last 12-ish years, I've been an investor and advisor to startup and growth companies here in Chicago. Wow, that's a great overview of the early side of your career and like how you evolved over time. I do want to take a step back, especially for someone interested in finance as well. And you did state that you were at Bank of America. Like, what was your day to day like? And then why telecom specifically? Yeah, telecom. I actually liked telecom. And I, I talked to my kids about this as they try to figure out what to do in college and beyond. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I was good at math and science. And if I became an engineer, I'd make get a decent job. And so I picked electrical engineering for the simple reason that I like music. I thought radio was cool. I thought it was cool how yeah. signals can fly through the air invisible. Yeah. That was the, pretty much the sole reason I picked electrical engineering. And I focused on RF and microwave, you know, so radio signals. Um, yeah, so that was, and once I was in telecom, in my career, it was a big industry, it was growing. I kind of strategically said, I'm going to stay involved in telecom. That's what I spent seven years learning. So if I'm going to be do something with this MBA I got, I'm going to try to do it in telecom. And so I looked and hunted for a job that would take me out of the technical space into finance, but still be telecom. Wow. It took a while. Yeah. Okay. And then I know on, in our previous conversation, which we will also dive into when we get to the VC side of the podcast, you talked about like diving into a specific industry or niche and learning more about it. And that would propel you to more success. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I see yeah. that with telecom. Yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. I thought it before I read Gladwell's book about 10,000 hours of becoming an expert. But I think as I look at startups and my own included with my partners who were all, we were all in our early thirties. So we had a decade in and around telecom and we were, by that point, we knew a lot. We were basically, we had become experts. And so I, I really think, and that'll be the theme of what I talk about. I think it's important for anyone doing a startup to have some real expertise, either in a technology, maybe they're a coder, um, I think of the Google guys who were yeah. early in search and were experts or in an industry. Maybe you know a lot about the business ins and outs of an industry. That's an expertise. But yeah, um, I think we were we were newly minted experts in telecom and that really helped us. Okay. And then moving forward, um, you did talk about this, but getting into the details, you did um, end up co-founding a telecom startup called Focal Communications. It started off with a team of three, um, other three other individuals, including yourself, that would be four. And four. within four years, you also took this company from the idea stage to an IPO, which for those that didn't know, it was listed on NASDAQ as FCOM. And between that time, you happened to raise $125 million from investors, generated $240 million in revenue. And you did state that that was the experience of a lifetime. So if you can talk a little bit more about that, like what was the company's mission and how did you go about finding that gap in the industry? Um, I will credit my co-founder and friend, John Barnacle, who gathered the rest of us together one night in front of a whiteboard and said, guys, here's what we need to do. and Here's why it'll work. And the gist of it was um, in telecom, like a lot of networks, right? Railroad, trucking, 
there's major components. There are the wires, the transportation component, and then there's the switches at a hub where calls are transferred among people. So the big investment, very capital intensive. You got to crack the streets and put copper or fiber cables in there, get them to people's homes or businesses. And then you have to build these data centers, basically, where these big, big expensive switches sit. So um, that's a lot of money to invest. Hard to compete with an entrenched provider. Kind of why telecom was a monopoly in the U.S. Mm. Government sanctioned monopoly for many, many years, right? Well, technology comes to the rescue, right? So fiber optics comes. Yep. New competitors start building fiber optic networks in urban centers to give big businesses a choice, uh, really for data circuits, not for switched services, but for direct connections among computers. So you've got a lot of computer usage in business, and you've got now fiber networks where a big, big business can decide to connect its locations directly. So the next step was the switches, that other part of the network where you could plop a switch in. If you could use the fiber networks other people already built, you can then provide a switched telephone service, meaning phone numbers and dialing and voice calls. Um, You could now do that as a competitor if you stitched it together that way. And that was the the genius of my, my friend's plan. And it was the right timing. So, um, so that was the theory. And so we were providing, we were just competing with the Bell companies, but we picked, we segmented, we picked large businesses in very dense urban areas. We had to do that because we needed the fiber networks that were only in the dense areas. Right. We needed, and something about telecom is um, because of those monopolies the government sanctioned, they evened out pricing. But in reality, it was much cheaper to serve dense urban areas than rural and suburban areas. So, but the pricing didn't reflect that. And so there was money to be made. If you could, you could cut the price to the businesses for phone calls and still make a good margin because it was reasonably inexpensive to serve them. So we did two things. We segmented customers, took advantage of fiber networks, and then dropped in our own assets, the switches. And that kind of mixture, I'm probably getting too deep in telecom here, but that mixture at that time was a winning incremental improvement for large businesses. Wow. Then um, looking into key lessons that you learned when raising venture funding, um, can you break it down from like every um, funding round? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So the funding here is complex, very capital intensive business. So the first thing we did, well, we set things up ahead of our money. We, We negotiated a contract, a supply agreement with the with technology providers, that was going to be important to show a venture capital firm, hey, we have a deal to buy these switches already. So we really know what they're going to cost. And they're actually configured fairly uniquely. I won't get into that. But it it proved that we knew what we were doing and that we were ready for their check. When it arrived, we were going to make a purchase order immediately. Um, but we raised, another thing we did was, um, you know, I was familiar from my time as a securities analyst with how the couple of other competitors already trying to do it funded themselves. So you could get debt capital because you had big assets. These switches were had a value to them that if you went broke as a business, you could sell them off. So you could raise debt capital. So we had, we had a sense for what we were going to do. If you gave us equity, we were going to put some debt on it too. And we knew the market would support that. So we raised 25 million of equity 
in our first round. And it was structured in a way we didn't get all 25 at first. They committed to 25 at a certain valuation, but they said, we'll give you, what do you need for your first city? Our plan was to do nine cities. And so they said, great, prove it in one city. Here's 3 million of the 25. Go build out the first city. Show us that you actually can do it. And then you can have the rest as you need it. And so that's what happened. So we raised 25, took three down, built Chicago, switching center, got the fiber networks connected, sold some customers. And then they said, okay, um, we had faith, but now you've proven it. And so then we went to New York, took more of their equity. But in terms of the overall capital, our plan went from nine cities. We grew it to 25 cities. So we raised 25 million of equity. We then did 50 million of equipment secured financing. We then did, before we went public, we did high yield uh, bonds, 150 million of high yield debt. Then we did our IPO, which was 140 million raised. Then we did another round of high yield debt, 270 million on top of that. And then right before I left, we arranged a credit line for 300 million, of which we could get 150 right away. So if you add up those numbers, you end up somewhere above 500 million of capital, which is ridiculous. But this was a time when very asset heavy business, it's changed from then to now, obviously, because telecom calling is an app now, but on a wireless network. Back then it was heavy assets. So we raised a ton of money um, and we needed it, but it was unusual. That's some big... yeah. Sorry, sorry to cut you. You have more to say? No, that's good. Okay, for sure. And that's some big success success that you did talk about and share with us. And like, I think there's lessons that we can learn from both sides. One, as a VC, um, when looking for um, investments that might bring a higher return and as a founder. So can you share um, some lessons you might think both parties can learn from? Yeah, I will just, I'll start with my own startup from long ago. What did they look at when they said, do we give these guys 25 million? They looked at, the first thing I looked at was, does your plan make sense? So they were interested at that time, the government had changed the rules in 1996 or something called the Telecom Act of 1996, which basically opened up the market to competitors. So when that happens, People that are familiar, investors in the space take notice. They were looking for teams that would exploit this. So one thing, if you're going to raise money, is go into a hot sector that investors are actually interested in funding, right? So we had that advantage. We then had credibility. They looked at the four founders and they said, well, two of you have VP titles at one of the two big fiber network companies. I mentioned people that build fiber. Two of my co-founders were VPs at one of those companies. So that gave us credibility. Um, they then looked at the plan. You know, This was the era before you just did a 20-slide deck. We had a bit, very thick business plan, which explained everything we intended and, uh, and had a complete set of five-year financials from me that had a tie-out, right? And so we had to show them here's how many minutes per line, here's how many lines we'll sell, and here's um, the capital investment per line. And so I had this very detailed financial, really a unit economic model to show them that we understood the economics of the business. 
And they tested all those things. They sat me in a room. They tore apart my Excel spreadsheet, questioned the assumptions. They did checks on our backgrounds of people we worked with. So they were looking for uh, to be in the space, to find people that knew what they were doing, to make sure our plan had integrity. Um, and so I would say those concepts still hold today. It, you know, when investors are looking at startups, they're looking at, well, what, what core markets do I want to be in that are growing? Data centers, you know, still doing well, but like 10 years ago, I was just reading an article. They decide that there will be a lot of money to be made in data centers or wireless towers. So they look to invest in that space. They look for a team that knows what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's that. I think it's a hot space, a team that has domain expertise, this whole expert thing I was talking about earlier. And then that that they have a way in that actually makes sense, that can you actually make money as a new entrant in this space? And why is that? And I would say those are the top of mind reactions to that. That's great insight. Moving forward to your second company with Concourse Communications, you have exited this company as well. What steps did you take to make that happen? And a follow-up question to that would be, how would a founder know when it's right to take on the deal when exiting a company? Yeah, so Concourse is really interesting. Another friend of mine was the private equity person with the fund that got me involved. He called me up one day, he said, and this is a story about, it wasn't a startup. It was an existing company with contracts. Yes. And so this was a private equity deal more than a venture deal because it had revenue and cash flow. Um, but this is a story about in that business of private equity, what price you pay on the way in really matters. And so here's the story. This company existed they had debt. They were funded by an old tower company called Spectrosite. That company went into bankruptcy. When you go into bankruptcy, you look at your assets and you try to sell them to raise money. One of the assets they had was a loan to this small group of gentlemen in New York City. And these gentlemen came from the real estate business and realized the telecom, wireless telecom, was a big growth area because this goes back you know, 20 years. And so they struck a contract with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which controls the three airports in New York, the two, two of the tunnels in and out of Manhattan. And they said, give us the rights to wireless. We will cause uh, wireless systems to be built in your airports for uh, cellular service. So, you, you know, so people flying can make phone calls in the airport. I won't get into the details of it, but you can't stick towers all over an airport because they stick up, right? Right. So, and yet there's all these people who want to talk while they're sitting there. So how do you do that? Well, there's systems to do that. You basically build a wireless network in the airport that is a cellular tower that's all strung out with wires and little antennas in the ceiling of the airport, right? So they struck a deal. They had this great contract, 20-year contract with Port Authority. And we bought the debt from this tower company um, that these guys owed. And so now we were their bank. Okay. And we said, and they, and when that deal was struck, the founders of that company agreed to give my fund, my friend's fund, the option to buy their equity as well. That was a condition of him buying the debt. And so he had an option at a certain price to buy their company. He owned the debt. So then he called me. He said, All right, I have this 
option. I own this debt. So I went in and learned the company. It was after my exit from Focal. I had time. I said, all right, um, great little company. The equity, the price you agreed to pay at your option, I think is far too high. I wouldn't do it, despite it being a great company. Because you got to make money, right? right? If you overpay, it's harder to make profit on the deal. Long story short, there were covenants on their debt. They failed to meet their covenants. So they were in default on the loan. So now we turned down buying the equity, but they're in default on the loan to us. So we, we negotiated with them a settlement. We said, listen, buy us out, pay us back for our debt with a little premium, and we'll go away. But if you don't do it within four months, you will give us the equity. And they felt comfortable with that. They thought they could raise the money to pay us off. Um, I told my friend, I said, I'm not sure they can. If they can, fine, we paid off. We made a little money. If they can't, we got a real nice asset here. And the bottom line is they didn't quite do it. We were handed the ownership of the company by a judge one afternoon. And, you know, I flew the next day to their headquarters, changed the locks, took over the company. So that is a story of buying at a good price. So then we built the company. Oh, there was no Wi-Fi up yet. And that was the time Wi-Fi was becoming pervasive. So we took that contract. We had the rights to put any radio signals we wanted in those locations. So we built Wi-Fi at LaGuardia, Newark, Kennedy airports. We started charging people six or seven dollars to use it for an hour before their flight really boosted the cash flows of the company and then we sold that to boingo so the lesson there is um yeah buying at the right price really helps you out when it comes time to sell because you're probably going to make money wow okay now talking more about the vc side of the business as many may know, you're already an investor at Hyde Park Angels, and you may have received an abundant amount of pitch decks through LinkedIn and emails. So how does a founder make themselves distinct? And I know you did talk a, a lot about that already, but just to focus on that question, how do founders make themselves distinct? I think, um, well, let's start with your good example, energy. A cold call reach out is hard to make successful. You did it with me because of your energy. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of table stakes. You've got to really come across energetic, like you want what you want. Um, then I will jump back to, do you know anything about the space you're entering? Like I would prefer you be an expert, right? So right. when I see people, I've told students at, at Booth this, this notion of being an expert, like if you're 24, you want to be an entrepreneur, but you haven't developed an expertise yet. Take a breath, figure out what space you like that's growing. Go get a job in a company that's there and learn it. Become that expert. Come back out when you're 28 or 9, and that will help you a lot because I personally don't like to write checks for people that aren't experts at something. That's that's just me. Because um, it's hard enough to do a startup. Um, if you don't really have the angles figured out, it, it just makes it that much harder to succeed. Um, integrity. So whatever, understand that you're, you're leaving a trail with every stop you make, people can find it out, especially these days with the internet and social media. And they will find out where you worked and, he, and they'll ask you for references and they'll call those. And then they'll ask those people, who else should I talk to that knows this guy or gal? Right. 
And then they'll ask those people, who else should I talk to? So any dirty little secrets you have about jobs that didn't go right or run-ins with other folks you work with, a good investor can find those out. So you got to know right off the bat, if you hope to do this, you better leave a very good breadcrumb trail everywhere you go, which means you can leave a job, but leave it cleanly. You'll give them their notice, work hard the last two or four weeks. Um, so I would say that uh, teams, teams help. You know, we were a team of four and we happen to know each other because three of us worked together at that telephone company. Um, the other worked at a bell company. Um, we all had different strengths. We were all actually degreed engineers from an undergrad perspective, but we all went off in different directions. Uh, my partner with the idea was very operations oriented. I had gone off to become a financial analyst. My other, our other partner was went into sales out of undergrad. So he knew how to sell. And so when we presented ourselves as a multifaceted team, that made it interesting um, to investors because they didn't have to help us find the other talent we would need. So that's also something to think about. And then a comment on teaming, pick right, pick your teammates well, because it's a little bit like a marriage and it's painful to get out of. So, you know, think about uh, complementary skills and who you can actually get along with if times get tough. There we go. And then before a founder looks for capital, what should they really take care of first? Um, I would say uh, the more traction, the more you can prove about your business plan before you take third party money, the better. Because it's just easier to raise if you've already, like if you want to be, I don't know, let's say uh, you're a software company. If you could actually get the code written or at least an MVP, a minimally viable product version of the code and get someone who either is a customer or who might be a customer to use it and really have to show that you can build it, show that someone will use it. That's very, very helpful. So as much as you can get done with maybe your own money or your friends and family money before you go to outside investors, the better. Having said that, not having a dirty cap table, don't have like, 25 names of aunts and uncles because investors don't want to deal with um, non-professional investors. Yeah. So make it your money or your literally one or two other family members. Now in our case, four of us founded this company. Two of us had family with money and two of us didn't. And so we didn't have a lot to bring to the table financially. So we all wrote a very small check that we personally could afford. We wrote our business plan on it. Um, so we didn't do what I said because we couldn't. We couldn't buy a switch and turn it up. It was millions of dollars. Um, but anyway, if you're a software company, I'm on the board of another company that's doing very well. This person went into his MBA program and he said, I have my business idea. I'm going to spend the next two years not only getting my MBA, but using the network of the school I came to using my friend in India to write the code at night. He'd work for Google during the day and he was writing code for my friend at night. And by the time two years later came, he was coming out of school, he had a minimally viable product written and he had a network of contacts in the industry he was entering, people that would try it. So he was very, very deliberate about 
how he was going to launch. And I mean, he spent two years part-time uh, making it happen. So um, those are good examples of the kind of prep work you can do. Okay. And then we did talk a little bit about raising capital and raising actually can be difficult, especially when founders don't know how to value their own company. I mean, if we want to get technical, you can look into comparable evaluation um, some others in long term look at multiples, but how should you go about value, valuing your company with awareness and with reason? It's very hard. I mean, I just go by rules of thumb right now, and I have a little different view than I've noticed, but I think I'm around the ballpark of what VCs think about. If it's a pre-revenue company and it's a seed round, um, you, you can raise a couple million bucks and you can keep control of your company. So those are the rough measures. So if you raise 2 million bucks in a seed round, maybe you give up 30% ownership. Um, you know, so that implies people are paying uh, for a pre-revenue company, you know, what, six, 2 million for 30%. So they're paying about 7 million. So people will pay three to $7 million in evaluation for a very early stage company if they really like the idea. So the, the best thing you can do is not need much money early, right? So if you raise a million, then maybe you give up 20% of the company. But my point is it's really, it's really soft in those early days how to value things. It's, it's, you know, it's really that simple that, okay, if, I, if you're really experienced, I love your idea, it's a hot space, I'm excited, you're pre-revenue and don't have much yet. Yeah, I'll give you a couple million bucks. I'll take 30%. And I want the right to lead the next round. Okay. Makes right? sense. Right. Or to participate in the next round at least. At a discount, uh, too. Yeah, if possible, right? If you did a safe note, right. That is enticing. I've done a lot of those where I say, well, at least I'm going to get a 20% discount to the next round. That's enticing. So yeah, so soft. I will tell you this. I tell people this story because I think it it's stark and it shocks them. When we did our startup, you know, we needed a lot of money, capital intensive business. I told my partners, I said, I'm gonna raise, we're raising the money. We are not gonna be, even if this works wildly successfully, we will not be anywhere close to Bill Gates rich. And they just looked at me and said, Well, what do you mean? I go, we need so much capital and we need it right away. We're gonna give up like big chunks of ownership. So sure enough, that $25 million equity commitment, we gave up 80%. Wow. 80%. Wow. Okay. So we negotiated an option. We said, if it really, really goes well, give us 15 points of that back. So we would go from 20 to 35%. And in fact, that happened because we did do well early we didn't get all 15. There was a little bit of negotiating there, but we got half of that 15 back later too. So you clawed back equity. Right. Because it was so egregious. Wow. So we were losing 80%. It was really, you know, and they had the control as the board to fire us. So we, we really took a chance. We, it needed to work. Right. And it did. And we clawed back, wow. I think about seven of that 15%. Wow. Okay. Okay, that, that. But having said that, I'll tell you this: we were each worth um, quite a bit. You can look up the documents yourself. We were worth a lot of money at IPO, 
I mean, it actually worked. It was this notion of having a small piece of a very big pie. Right. Yeah. We weren't Bill Gates rich by any means. We were, <laughs> but we did well until the bubble burst in 2001. But that's a whole different podcast. Well, but at the right, IPO, but- it looked good. It looked smart. Well, then it did work out eventually. So, wow, that's a really different approach. And I think, honestly, for me in the space, especially for me as a founder myself, I think um, the founders now, we're a little bit soft, right? Um, Especially the it's easy money right now. I mean, not exactly at this moment, but the past 20 years, it's been easy money. um, Until now, the rates are going up, as you already know what the Fed is doing now. But what are mistakes you're currently seeing many founders making right now or startups in any space in general? Yeah, it's the mindset you're suggesting, which is it's been too easy for too long. Um, You know, companies were valued based on revenue multiples, which I I still laugh because back in my day, it was EBITDA multiples, right? You had the presumption was you're going to make cash flow sometime within three or five years. It was presumed this notion of losing money for extended periods while you grow the top line, that being good enough, that wasn't what it was like before. You had to have like vision to actually making cash flow. So, you know, 10 times revenue and losing a negative EBITDA, those are, that's a luxury market that we've been in. And that's definitely changing. All the companies I'm involved with now are definitely saying, all right, what is, do I have a plan where I can get to cash flow break even and cash self-sufficiency in the next? Can I do it with the cash I have? And right. if not, oh my God, how do I cut the burn to get as close as I can? <clears throat> because the view is if I need more money, it's gonna be it's gonna be painful. So let's see if I can get to profitability without that. So that's the rationalization going on right now that wasn't around for the last, gosh, at least five years. Um, and I just kept shaking my head like, wow, these are the valuations people are getting and it's okay to lose money as long as you're growing the top line fast enough. And, and I get it. And I think a lot of that, Jason's from the software, the SaaS world last decade, so much value is created by software companies and they have 70% plus gross margins. So if you have, you in other words, you could turn, you could stop selling cut your expenses quickly and all of a sudden you're you're floating in positive uh, gross margin dollars. It kind of makes sense, but that doesn't, outside of SaaS, that right. quickly fades because of kind of real businesses, other businesses with assets, hard assets, it's not the same thing. You're not dealing with 70% gross margins. Exactly. You're dealing with much less. And so you really have to get there faster and accept lower valuations. And then with VCs and angel investors, what do you think are common mistakes they're making right now? The, that the investors are making? Yes. Yeah, so now a lot, of, a lot of us are facing the companies that do need more money that aren't going to be cash self-sufficient because they were trying to grow the top line. So now they're coming back they, and, and a lot of them can't get a new investor to write a check. Because new investors are cautious and they say, well, you haven't proven you can make money yet. And, and those same new investors have their own portfolio of prior companies that need cash that they want to save. So we're all looking at our existing portfolios and we're saying, 
they need money. Is this going to be good money after bad? Or is this going to be good money after good? Should I write that check to save this company? Can they really get to cash self-sufficiency? So those are the hard decisions. And so people are really getting down to the nuts and bolts about, um, show me your forecasts. Like what are the drought? They're back to financial models. Right. Trying to forecast in really reality intense. when this thing can be profitable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, that's the thing. That's the funny part because like, like we talked in um, our previous converse- conversation, um, we did talk about how valuations in secondary markets started just getting large discounts and they just started spilling over into um, primary markets and like private markets and investments that VCs have made. So started yeah. one place and now it's just collateral damage all over. True. And, mm-hmm. you, have, you have an insight you want to share? Well, I was just going to say, having said that, I, I will confess, I still have written a check or two for new startups. So if it's hot enough, if the team's good enough, it's just more selective. Yeah. But I think also um, even like just coming down into theory, like with VCs and like common shares and preferred shares, I think it, there are certain principles in place where it's like, if you do take the risk where it makes much more sense and you're looking at a specific industry long-term and you did talk a lot about understanding industries and get really doing the deep dive. I think that's where you get the higher yield because I feel like with VCs as well, they tend to see, especially in AI or with crypto, crypto is a better example. Crypto was so hyped and a lot of these VC firms started raising additional capital without understanding exactly what crypto was or what's the crypto's mission long term. And once the market started getting so much backlash, these funds weren't bringing the returns that were expected. So I think even though you did write these one to two new checks, if you're really looking at it long term, and you're conservative about the investment, then there's a higher chance that those might yield more than other investments you may have made during like an easy time of investing. I think that's right. And I would just add to that the valuations we're going in at are more attractive now too. So right. that whole notion of your profit is to, your your gain is determined by the difference between what you exit at and what you paid. So what you paid matters, right? And valuations are more reasonable now. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Well, we have spoke a lot about everything related to VC investing, turning companies profitable. Um, and I do want to start looking into like last minute tips that you may have for the audience on both the VC side of things and, um, the founder side of things. Yeah. I mean, I'll revisit the prior themes, I think as a founder, um, make sure you have something unique, um, that you're working on. Try to be an expert. You know, I think that's super helpful. Be discerning in your teammates and how you split equity. We didn't talk about that among founders. Um, that's a tough discussion and it's hard to make it early, but, uh, it's an important one. Um, so yeah, so I think for founders, it's also a time, you know, when markets go like they are now, you see a lot of 
talented young folks either stay in their companies and build that expertise or they go get that MBA they thought about getting. They do it now while the investing markets are weak. And then when hopefully when they come out, things are better, right? So use this time, be strategic in what you do with your time right now in a down market. Um, and then for investors, yeah, I mean, uh, it's I'm a little out of place. I wouldn't try to tell professional institutional investors how to behave because they know more than I do. But uh, but what we're all doing, as I said earlier, is just trying to make sure we know which of our existing companies are worth saving and writing our concentrating our checks to that and getting real about <clears throat> maybe some we funded that oh, seemed like a good idea, but doesn't look like it's going to make it. So being discerning with those follow on checks um, is what we're doing, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joseph, for your time. And thank you for sharing your insight and advices on this podcast. Pleasure, Jason. Good to be with you.